Hello and welcome to this ELO podcast. In this episode, you will hear Dr. Richard Blackaby, president of Blackaby Ministries International, give a presentation entitled, The Disciplines of Spiritual Leadership. This presentation occurred at the ELO Forum in Vancouver on November 14th, 2019. Well, it is good to be with you, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed being a part of ELO and just seeing what, it, what they're doing and, uh, in the business community uh, all across Canada and, and even in Oxford. Uh, and uh, I, I want to tell you, I, I was privileged to grow up in a preacher's home. My dad was a, a pastor, and as a child, every Sunday, I would watch him preaching, and, and in, in my impressionable preschool kind of eyes, if you were going to serve God, that's how you did it. You, you preached. You, you were a pastor, and, and it was all about Sunday morning. And so you can probably imagine, as a preacher's kid, that uh, as a child myself, my favorite game to play was church. We had a little, my brother Tom and I shared a room. We had a bunk bed, and uh, I'd get in that little room. We'd get up in the top bunk, and we'd conduct services. We had, there was a small floor space. We only could put one chair uh, in the in the room, so we had a very small congregation. But and we'd begin the, the service. Tom would lead the music, and he'd begin by making announcements. We were we were only preschool children, but even at that tender age, we knew you could not worship God if you had not first made announcements. And so he would say immediately after the service today, we are we want to have an ice cream potluck fellowship. We hope that you all bring ice cream to this event and. Then we'd sing every children's song that we knew. My mother would belt out the songs with us. And, and then uh, when we exhausted our musical repertoire, uh, my brother would say, now our pastor's going to come and he's going to deliver God's word to us today. Now I was, I was only about four, so I, I was illiterate. I didn't know how to read or write. But I had a children's Bible that had pictures in it and I, I could tell by the pictures what the scripture story was. And, and I had taken a crayon and a, and a piece of paper and I had kind of, made a very rudimentary kind of sermon notes with symbols and scribbles, and I could kind of follow that. And when you're illiterate, it takes a long time to write a sermon, so I only had one. (laughs) And so it it mattered not how many times we had church, we might vary the song selection a little bit, but the sermon was always the same. But, uh, But I would preach it with a sense of urgency, with conviction, with passion, and, uh, and the, the title of the sermon was The Sin of Spanking Your Children. And, I, and as I would warm to my theme, I would say, there may be some here today who have committed this horrible sin against Almighty God and against your own flesh and blood. And even now, God may be pleading with you to turn back from your wicked and evil ways. And I would feel compelled to extend an altar call so that... Uh, People could be made right with Jesus right then and there. And when nobody walked the aisle after several verses had been sung, I'd learned this from my father. I'd pause and say, now folks, we're not in any hurry today. We're just, we're going to continue to sing until everyone has been made right with Jesus. And eventually, to bring closure to that experience, my mother would walk the aisle, rededicate her life, promising to be a better mother in the future. And we, we dismissed the service, rejoicing in God's goodness to us that day. Um, unfortunately, it never took my mother all that long to backslide <laughs> and, uh, uh, on our backsides, and we'd, we'd have to have another service. I, I, um, you know, in the early days, I thought that's, that's where God was working. God was working in the church service Sunday by Sunday. I became a pastor later, and I, I used to just 
I used to be depressed on Mondays. Not, not because I'd had a bad Sunday, but because I had to wait a whole week until the next Sunday. And for like a whole, when you only work one day a week, it's, you, you kind of look forward to that day. Uh, and, and God began to teach me that actually a lot of the biggest work he was doing wasn't in the church house. It was in the marketplace. And uh, it, it, my dad and I both had this interesting kind of journey uh, where we, we moved more and more to the marketplace. I never thought I would ever do that. But uh, today, I still work with pastors. I do a lot of leadership training, development. At least half my time, though, is spent with marketplace leaders. And one of the ministries I work with the most um, is called CEO Forum. I do a lot of work with them. It's a group of about 200 CEOs, uh, very high-end CEOs. Um, to be in that, that group, your, uh, your company has to do at least $100 million worth of business a year. A lot of these guys are Fortune 500 people. And uh, the thing I do with them is I, I, you sign up to be in a cohort with me, and I'll take you for three years. You'll meet three times a year. Uh, we'll, we typically meet at the, the, the DFW airport in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, there's a Grand Hyatt Hotel just right on the, on the airport property. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I lead a bunch of different cohorts. And they'll come for 10 different times. We actually had a guy come all the way from Hong Kong uh, 10 times, never missed a class, just to go to Dallas for a 24-hour period and then go back to Hong Kong. Uh, but these are business people that when they come, they'll say, I don't need you to teach me how to increase sales but I do need help knowing how to hear from God. I do need help in knowing, does God want me to go invest in this company or to, to leave this company and, and go there or to take this guy on as a partner or to walk away from this deal? And we've had uh, CEOs that were, had won all kinds of awards for business, but then they had a child commit suicide. And they said, the world tells me I'm a success. I feel like a failure. And I just can't help but wonder if I had been more sensitive to God and his promptings, if maybe it would have been different for my family. Uh, one guy, fabulously successful, I uh, was with him in his home, it was worth probably about $850 million. But he was on his third marriage, and none of his kids uh, wanted anything to do with him. In fact, uh, every year you'd, you'd see him giving a little announcement about what exotic Italian villa he was spending Christmas at, or what cruise he was on over the holidays. I used to always think, wow, that must be nice to be able to afford just to have such exotic Christmases. And then I learned the reason he did that was because none of his kids wanted him at their house for Christmas. So he had to find some exotic place to go so he wasn't just sitting at home without anybody. And so these people come and say, I, I've been successful in business, I think I've failed at life, or I'm failing in my walk with God. Will you help me? And uh, interestingly, a lot of these people say, I, uh, no one has ever discipled me. Because I'm a successful business person, I get put on the board of elders at my church, but I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know how to read the Bible. But I'm on the finance committee because of my background in business. And so, one of the, so I've been able to meet some very interesting people and work with some interesting people. And I remember one woman came into our class, came for three years, but uh, she worked on Wall Street before that, was making more money than she ever thought that she would. And uh, she, um, 
was very successful, but she had three kids, was married, and was a Christian. And she lived with constant guilt because she never had time for God, didn't have adequate time for a marriage, had a nanny taking care of her kids. And so she said what many business people say, as soon as things slow down, I'm going to get some things right. Of course, they never did. One day, she's at work, first thing in the morning, and all of a sudden she hears alarms going off, sirens going. She uh, wonders what, what's happening. There's always something happening in Manhattan. Finally, though, there's such a commotion that she follows people walking out to the building to go outside, and when she gets there, it's 9-11, and she's working one block away from the World Trade Towers. She literally watches people leaping to their deaths from the upper floors when they were not able to escape. And when she goes home that night, she sat down with God and said, God, I cannot keep living this way anymore. No more excuses, no more putting it off. It's time I figured out what you want from me. Why you wired me this way, why you give me these opportunities, why you give me this influence. She quit her job and she enrolled in this class uh, to come with me. And uh, she, uh, at the end of the three years, she um, actually took a whole different job. Actually was first hired by Oprah Winfrey to work with her and uh, started a whole different direction in her life. Not just about accumulating money anymore, but actually making a difference. I want to just talk to you a little bit about just some of the, the CEO Forum actually is the name of the group that, uh, that I work with. Uh, I work with other groups as well. I don't just work with them, but that's, that's the, the main place I park my car and uh, work with in the marketplace. And uh, there may be some folks even that would be interested in that. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Uh, there's an interesting passage that when we do our training, one of the, the main verses or passages we go to is Mark 1, 16 to 20. It's kind of the basis of our, a lot of our training. You, you know the story. It says, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. By the way, we tend to think in terms of um, how God's going to raise up preachers. I know when Billy Graham died, my parents were invited to the funeral, and everybody was talking about who will the next Billy Graham be. Lord, send another Billy Graham. He was certainly a great man of God. But do you realize when you read the Bible that most of the people God called up in times of crisis, need for revival, were not preachers? They were business people. They were fishermen. There were shepherds, carpenters. Most of the people God called were not preachers. When he wanted to change the world, he got fishermen. In fact, Jesus picked 10, 12 men. Not one of them were, was a preacher. They were all business people. Isn't it interesting when the Son of Man, Son of God, wanted to change the world, he went to the business community to get people? He, he was on to something. He knew that business people were the perfect a type of person for him to use if he was going to turn the world upside down. And he said, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. By the way, one thing that you learn from that is that Christianity is not about believing the right things. It's about following the right person. Christianity is not about what you believe. It's about following him. You're not a disciple because of what you believe. Disciples are people who follow somebody. Jesus didn't say, come and believe in me. He said, come and follow me. And I see a lot of people who want to claim to be Christians, but they don't want to follow Jesus. They're willing to believe in him. They just don't want to follow him. 
They don't want to go where he tells them he's going. But Jesus' command was, come follow me. And he said, I will make you become. In other words, you're not yet the person I, I need you to be. But if you hang out with me, you'll be transformed. And so when we work with these CEOs, <coughs> the first year, these guys are high-level guys. We had the former CEO of Walmart was in this group. Um, these guys, when they get in the room, it's like, okay, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to fix? Where do you want to invest our expertise? And for the first year, all we do is say, we just want to teach you how to follow Jesus and to hear his voice and to be willing to do what he says and actually just to enjoy being with him if that's all he wants from you. If he doesn't ask you to do anything except, expect, except spend time with him, would that be adequate for you? That drives them crazy. They're not ready for that. And so when they get through year one, it's like, okay, we did that. We've learned how to abide in Christ. Now, what do you want to do? And for the whole second year, we talk about becoming, about being fashioned into the instrument God's looking for. Jesus took three and a half years to get his disciples to become the men he was looking for them to be. He didn't rush them right into the work. It took three, over three years. So we say to these guys, let's take a year and let God change anything he needs to change in you so now you're the instrument he's looking for. That really gets to them. It's not till the year, the year three we actually talk about doing anything. And uh, they've never had anything like that before. These guys think that because they're Christians, they know how to do business in a Christian way. They don't realize that the world has been inundating them their whole life to do things the world's way. And the biggest problem with the church today is we keep trying to do God's work the world's way. Because we think that because we're Christians, we think like Christ. And we don't. We think like the world. No one's ever helped us know the difference between the way the world thinks and the way God thinks. And so after the third year now, we're watching these people going out and literally changing the world. And I, I want to just talk to you just about three things that, <coughs> that I found as we work with these guys. Um, by the way, first one is just simply God has a purpose for every person and their work. You show me a person and I, and I will help them discover what God's purpose is for them why God has given them the passions they have, why God has placed them in the job that he has, given them the skills that they have. And God knows how to take every person and use them to build his kingdom. If your life, if your business life is not in any way affecting the kingdom of God, you need to go back and talk to God. Because God can take, I don't care what your job is, God can take it and build his kingdom with it. And if you're not building the kingdom, I, I would suspect you're missing the purpose God has for you. God's purpose, I can promise you, is not to accumulate money. It is not just to earn a living. It is to follow him and build his kingdom. And if you're not there yet, you need to go back to God and ask him why not. USA Today did an online poll several years ago that I found quite fascinating. They, they asked people, if you won the lottery, would you quit your job? Um, well, 67% said absolutely. <laughs> In fact, some said I wouldn't even go back and quit. I wouldn't even give my two weeks notice. I wouldn't even care about collecting my last paycheck. I just wouldn't go back there if I didn't have to go back there. Um, only 11% said absolutely not. I'd keep doing what I do. Now, I kind of think the 67% actually is probably low, and I think the 11% is probably high, uh, if it really came, push came to shove. 
But what those statistics tell me is there's a whole bunch of people going to work only because they've got bills to pay. Not because they're fulfilling a, a calling, not because they feel like that's their purpose in life, it's because they've got a mortgage that they need to pay. And if the moment they didn't have to do that job, they'd never go back. When I saw that statistic, my daughter uh, was with me, and you know, daughters have an interesting way of figuring out their dads. She looked at me and said, Dad, you wouldn't quit, would you? I said, no. I, I said, I'd probably, I'd have a, a newer car. <laughs> I, might, I might have a nicer holidays, but I'd, I'd basically I'd keep doing what I do because I like what I do. I think what I do actually makes a difference. I think what I do actually makes the world a better place. And I want to spend my life doing that. I don't want to spend my life on vacation. I want to spend my life making a difference. My life is very quickly fleeting away from me. I only have so much time. I don't want to waste the time I've got. I want my life to make a difference. And so, as I work with people, we discover every person has a purpose. Every person. And I want to just give you a couple of examples of that. Um, I, I met a, a woman several years ago named Linda, and uh, she, uh, she had an abusive father. Her father was very abusive, and one day it, it got so bad that Linda woke up and there was a letter from her mother saying, I can't take it anymore, I, and she just left. Didn't know where her mother had gone. Her mom said, I just can't handle the abuse anymore. And so all of a sudden, now she's left at home with the abusive dad and has no idea how to reach her mother. She uh, has a boyfriend, she finds, someone that will care for her, and the boyfriend basically makes her sleep with him to prove that she loves him. If you really love me, you'll sleep with me. She does it once, gets pregnant, and then he dumps her. I guess she did find out how much he loved her. But she's only 15 years old, and she's expecting a child. When her dad finds out, he boots her out of the house. He's ashamed of her. Just get out. Don't, you're, not, you're not welcome in this house. So on the day that she's to deliver her child, she doesn't have any parents going with her. Her sister goes with her, younger sister. And as they're getting into the hospital, the nursing staff stops her and says, you, only husbands and parents are allowed to go any further with the, with the mother. She says, I don't have a parents or a spouse. They said, well, your sister can't go back with you. So this 15-year-old, about to deliver a child, scared to death, is all by herself. Gets pushed back into the room. She's panicking. They're trying to give her an epidural. And she's squirming so much, the side of this big needle they're trying to put in her spine, that uh, the nurse finally yells at her and says, if you won't sit still, you could end up paralyzed, which isn't the best bedside manner. Um, and all of a sudden, another, there's a doctor, there's this nurse, they're trying to get this young girl to settle down. Finally, another doctor comes in. He's got a mask, he's got a gown, but he, he ignores the other staff. He just comes straight to this girl, takes her hand, and just says, just focus on me. Just, just focus on me. It'll be fine. I'm here. I promise you everything will be fine. And she focuses on this doctor. She eventually gets the epidural in. She relaxes. The baby is born. The nurse comes around later just to check on her, and the nurse is saying, you know, I, I, I didn't think we were ever going to get that needle in you. I was really worried for you there for a while. And uh, Linda says, you know, until that, that uh, doctor came and talked to me, I just I couldn't settle down. I was just scared. And uh, the nurse looks at her and says, what, what doctor? 
she said, there was only one doctor in the room with me the whole time. And this woman's not even a Christian yet, but she begins to realize maybe she has another father that no one's ever told her about, who does love her, who she can trust. She ultimately finds that heavenly father, becomes a Christian, and gets a job as a single mom, caring for her only daughter. And uh, she's, uh, she moves out to California. She's, uh, she's got a job there, a Christian organization. She uh, has health benefits and so on, and uh, things are looking pretty good for her. Single mom, but able to pay her bills, take care of her only child. And then God one day gives her a really scary thought. God says, I want you to minister for me in Hollywood. She's a single mom, and she's got a good job, good health benefits, but she can't escape the fact she just knows God's saying, I want to use you to be salt and light in Hollywood. And finally, she puts out a few applications, and she gets hired by Warner Brothers. And she actually takes a cut in pay to leave this Christian organization where people are Christians to go into a very, very secular, anti-Christian environment. She gets there and she goes to the HR person and says, um, could I get a room? I know that employees can use facilities for free. Could I, could I get a room just to pray in once a week? The HR person says, I've been here almost 20 years. I've never had anybody asked to pray in any of our rooms at Warner Brothers. But she says, I guess you could. So uh, they start to, she starts to meet with some people to pray. They start doing other things. I, I, I got connected with her, and she said, I want to I get one of the screening rooms at Warner Brothers at lunchtime and just let people know if they'd like to come and find out how to experience God, they can do that. They don't know if anyone will come. But uh, on that day at noon, people start just filling up this screening room. One of the vice presidents at Warner Brothers walks in the room. Nobody had any idea who most of these Christians were. Like, they were all undercover. They, 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 they didn't know. There were people that, like, some of the people doing the janitorial work are coming in. They've got VPs and everything in between. And it was an awesome time. Well, I, I went back there for the next four or five years. And uh, this is some of the, the folks that were part of that group. And every time they would have some meeting on Warner Brothers property. And, and every time I'd go there, I'd say, now, tell me, give me an update. What's been happening since I was here last year? She said, oh, you wouldn't believe it. She said, now we've got a Bible study prayer group started at Disney Studios. And then now we're, in, now we're on Universal Studios. Now we're into Paramount. And every time I talk to her, she's got other prayer groups, Christian groups, and she'd always be excited. The, 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 the uh, administrative assistant for the CEO of Disney is a Christian and praying for Disney now, right, right outside the office of the CEO, and just networking these Christians all over Hollywood. And every time I'd go back and I'd talk to her, she'd say, I'm a single mom, just trying to do what Jesus told me to do, and I cannot believe, he's, of all the people he would use, to try to be salt and light in Hollywood. I would never, ever have guessed it would be me. Well, also, I just want you to understand that God is at work all around you. If you've taken experience in God, you know that's the, one of the fundamental realities that it tries to teach. It's not that you need to pray, oh God, would you come and would you work in my industry? Oh God, would you, would you do something in my office building? What we need to pray is, oh God, would you open my eyes so I would see how very present you already are? And let me see what you're already doing and help me to become a part of that. I could tell you stories for the next two hours about business people that did that very thing. The, uh, 
I knew the, the VP at Walmart over all the international Walmarts. He, uh, he was invited to go to India to um, talk to the Indian government. They wanted to put uh, Walmarts into the different provinces. But the week that he was going to go over there to meet with the government, he heard of um, a Christian church where a bunch of, of uh, Hindu radicals stormed into the church, grabbed the pastor right out of the pulpit, dragged him out in front of the church and beat him almost to death. And the police had made no arrests. They'd done nothing to bring justice, nothing to dissuade others from doing the very same thing to other churches. And this VP just had seen the news. And now, now the Indian government wants Walmarts all through their provinces. And this Christian man said, he, he reminded this government official of what had just happened to this church. And he said, I will not put a Walmart in any place where people do not have the freedom to worship God without fear of being beaten up in the middle of the service. And the, the Indian government came back and said, let us do some work on that. Let us talk to our, the police. Let us look at the laws. And um, as I talked to this Walmart executive afterward, he said, you know, a missionary, if a missionary went to the government and said, you need to go easier on the Christians here, they might have arrested the missionary. But if you're an executive for a major company, you're a business person, you actually can talk to people at the highest level. He said, I would never have thought that running a retail chain of stores could actually be providing air cover for missionaries and Christians on the ground in a very difficult place. Maybe the reason God's given me this influence is to actually open doors and provide cover for Christians who otherwise would be persecuted without any kind of defense or protection. You guys know the story of Hobby Lobby, the Green family, building a chain of craft stores. Who would have ever thought that by, building, by selling crafts that you could ever accomplish what the Green family has? Um, the Green family, of course, you know, they give 50% of their profits away to Christian causes. I'm all over the states. I, I, I speak to all kinds of different uh, Christian organizations. I can't go anywhere without finding someone who's been funded by green money, by Hobby Lobby money, by built this building, started this nonprofit, started this new training center, uh, missionaries all around the world that a craft store is funding. Uh, they said, you know what? People told us we were crazy, number one, for closing on Sundays. Everybody wants to work on their crafts on the weekend, run down to the store on Sunday to get supplies. They said, you'll go broke if you're not open on Sundays. And then you turn around and give half your profits away to Christian causes. Like, what kind of business plan is that? They said, we can't open stores fast enough. God is blessing us. This is the uh, green uh, CEO. <coughs> My wife and I, I, you know, they, if you've been to a Hobby Lobby store, they play Christian music on the intercom. It's very soothing, uh, comforting. My wife was going through kind of a stressful period of time uh, a little while ago. And so to calm down, she'd often just go over to, to Hobby Lobby. Just the, the environment was so relaxing. <laughs> so I told the CEO, I said, listen, can you play other music in your stores? Like, this is killing me. Like, I, like, it would be cheaper to buy my wife medication than to send her to your stores all the time. But if you, uh, if you, if you watch the news... Hobby Lobby, number one, they support all kinds of Christian cause. Who, who would have ever thought one of the biggest funders of Christian work in America would be a craft store? 
Who, what, who would come up with that strategy? Uh, and then if you watch the news a couple of years ago, they were taking uh, the Obama government uh, mandated that companies had to provide for abortions for their employees and their health plan. The Greens said, no, we'll give you nine different ways to prevent getting pregnant, but, but, we, but, but we don't consider abortion as, as birth control. Uh, and, and we won't pay for that. Well, they went all the way. They were being fined a million dollars a day, I think it was, uh, as long as they refused to comply. I talked to the Green family. They said, we were ready to spend a million dollars until we didn't have any more, but we were not going to pay for abortions. They get all the way to the Supreme Court and ultimately win the right to say, if that violates our Christian beliefs, we should not have to pay for that. Who would have thought again that if you're going to go right to the Supreme Court fighting for the freedom of Christian business people to follow their convictions that people selling crafts would be all the way at the Supreme Court. I was with him just after the ruling at the Supreme Court and it was amazing to hear they were called women haters. Um, and if you knew the story, you'd realize that they had gone in against the powers of darkness all the way to the Supreme Court. And I said, who would have thought God would take a craft supplier, and be fighting battles for Christian business people at the Supreme Court. And if you know also, they have, they've, uh, they've founded the uh, Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Again, if you've been to that fabulous, first-class, world-class museum about the Bible, a, a block or two from uh, the U.S. Capitol, uh, a craft store putting world-class museums for the Bible and Christianity in Washington, D.C., uh, the Green family asked themselves, why has God given us this ability? Why has he given us this influence? Let's use it for the kingdom. And you know what? The more that they strive to bless the kingdom, guess what? God's been blessing them and protecting them and keeping his hand upon them. Last one uh, is just that God works in you before he works through you. Uh, you may want God to use you mightily, but that's why when we have these uh, CEOs we work with, they want to get to the work, and we say, but he's going to work in you before he works through you. Too many people want to get serving God before they're ready to represent God properly. Uh, and, and we're watching all over the place where sometimes we're anxious for God to do a great thing, and it doesn't seem like he is that eager to use us. And it's not that he doesn't want to use you, it's just you're not ready yet. I just finished a study on Abraham. I mean, God said, I'm going to give you a child. How long does it take God to give someone a child? Nine months, right? You got one. It took Abraham 25 years. Why did it take 25 years? Well, God could have given him a, Isaac in nine months, but it took 25 years to get, God re, to get Abraham ready to raise a patriarch. Um, and so God works in you before he works through you. I, one of my favorite stories, if you've been through Experiencing God, you've heard Burl Cain's story. He was uh, made the warden at Angola Prison, one of the most dangerous prisons in all of America. It had 5,200, it has 5,200 uh, male inmates. Uh, 34, when I, I've been there several times, uh, 3,400 of the inmates serving life sentences. So they, they will never, ever leave. He said every year they bury more inmates than they release out the front door. Of those who aren't there serving life, the average sentence is 91 years. So those guys are saying, I'm lucky, I don't have life. I'm out of here in just 91 years. It's a... Uh, when I was there the last time, there was, they still had someone there who'd been incarcerated when uh, Dwight Eisenhower was the president in the 50s. And uh, they'll never leave. So, in fact, uh, that's, uh, 
That's death row on the left. That's the execution bed uh, in the execution chamber. I've walked down death row. They, the last time I was there, they had 88 men waiting to be given lethal injection. Um, I'll tell you what, that's a sobering walk to go row by row and talk to people waiting to die. Uh, that's the death chamber. In fact, I think uh, uh, a couple of famous movies have been based uh, there. But Burl was, uh, when I, by the way, when I went down death row, first guy I met, the, the warden said, he, he became a Christian. He, just, he was just baptized. And I'm like, oh, praise God, you know, another believer. We get down to the end of the row, and the warden looks back at me and says, that first guy you met, the guy that got baptized? Yeah. Said he, he said, he, he raped, murdered, and mutilated 19 women in Baton Rouge. Some of the evilest, wickedest, darkest human beings in America were occupying those prison cells. Finally, Burrow had to perform his first execution. He, he doesn't even believe in capital punishment, but he had, that's his job. He's going to be the warden. He's got to do it. And so it, just after midnight, uh, he's in that room. He's standing. He's, there's a man strapped to that bed. He's standing to the, right behind the, the inmate. The inmate is trembling, shaking, scared to death that in just a few moments he'll be standing before God. And when the time had come, Burrow just puts his thumb down like this to indicate, go ahead and put the lethal injection in. There's about three men around the corner. He doesn't know which of the three will put in the lethal injection. It's all, they have to do it all to be able to defend themselves in court because there's always a lawsuit coming against them. And within moments, the man was dead. As Burrell's going back, uh, he signed out the papers, filled out the paperwork. He's on his way home. He senses God speaking to him. And he feels like God says, you just sent a man into eternity. Did you ever tell him about me? And he realizes, no. He says, God, I, I was just doing my job. And he feels like God says, I didn't put you on this planet just to do your job. I put you on this planet to do my will. Burl says, but God, I could get in trouble. Burl, and he felt like God said, welcome to the club. I've been, <laughs> I've been getting people in trouble for centuries. I didn't put you on this planet to play it safe either. You've only got a limited time. Get in the game. Start seeing how your life could make a difference. Burl ultimately offers the, the folks on death row the opportunity to study experiencing God. And, uh, and as they do that, they, they start getting saved by the dozens. He opens it up to the whole prison population. Hundreds of people are getting saved. The violence in that prison drops by 73%. A bunch of the inmates start feeling called into the ministry. They actually started a Bible college in that prison to train people to be pastors. of church. There's churches all over that prison complex now uh, that, that were trained there. I, I've taught classes, Bible classes there. 60 students in my room. I'm teaching them the Bible. They've got the Bible. They've got their notebooks. It, it dawned on me. I've got 60 men in the room with me, and I'm the only guy in the room who's never murdered anybody. I think I've never had a classroom like that before. I, uh, I didn't make the exams all that difficult, I can promise you. <laughs> They've actually sent out missionaries around the What they do is, I mean, you think missionaries, you're serving a life sentence. They transfer them two by two to other maximum security prisons. They send them to, to one prison. The violence dropped by 48% six months later. And uh, if you watch the Billy Graham funeral, Billy Graham was buried in a, in a casket made by those inmates. Billy Graham said, I want to be buried 
by a casket made by those inmates' hands. Uh, absolutely amazing. I sat there with Bro Kane. I said, Bro, how do you explain what God has done? He just said, one day, God just convinced me that he had a whole bunch more he wanted to do through my life than what he'd been doing. I thought I was just to run a prison. God said, I'm going to use you to change the world. Uh, and that's what God wants to do with every one of us. One, one last story. This is Nell. Nell was a typical uh, Christian, went to church every Sunday, never missed a potluck. Uh, in her entire life, she'd never, told, she'd never told anyone about Jesus. But, well, i tell you what, she was as faithful of a church attender as, as you could find. Uh, at one point, she was in a horrific car accident. An 18-wheel truck crashed right into her vehicle. She and her husband were in it. The, the, the truck crushed the entire, uh, her, their, their vehicle brought it right down upon her legs, broke every bone in the lower half of her body. She was in such excruciating agony, she actually cried out to God and said, oh God, just take me home. She wanted to die, it hurt so much. And for the first time in her life, she felt like she heard God speak to her and say, I'm not done with you yet. That haunted now. She thought, what, what have you done with me? What have you ever done with me? She finally got out of, out of, it took six months to get out of the hospital. Her husband ultimately died. Now she's a crippled, elderly widow. She, at 66 years old, she goes to church one day, and they're announcing they're going to have an evangelism training class. She thinks to herself, I wish I'd had that 40 years ago. I'm 66 now. It's too late for me. But she was 67, I think. And, uh, but God won't release her. So she signs up for the class, goes each week. The last week, instead of being in a classroom, though, the pastor takes her out to actually tell someone about Jesus. She's 67, has never done this before. And so while she's there, the pastor is talking to a husband and wife in their living room, and all of a sudden a 15-year-old daughter comes around the corner, and she knows her job is to just occupy any distraction so the pastor can share Christ with the couple. So she starts talking to this teenage girl. Before she knows it, she's, she's presenting Christ to the girl. And it's the worst presentation perhaps ever made. She forgets her, all of her ice-breaking comments. She misquotes scripture. She gets things coming sideways and backwards. And I mean, it's just awful. Finally, to, to bring an end to this miserable presentation, she just says, would, would you like to become a Christian? And the, and the girl says, I would. And, and, and Nell's like, you would after that? And so she prays with this teenager, and she, she becomes a Christian. Nell, Nell goes by Walmart picks up a little notebook, goes, sits down, and on page one of her notebook writes, writes the girl's name, writes the date, writes the occasion, and she says, God, this is the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. For an eternity, someone will be in heaven with you because of what you did through me. She's got a whole book with one name in it. She said, God, before I die, just let me put one more name in this book. The names of those people I personally have led to faith in Christ. Well, the next week, she's, at a, she's always at the, hot, at the doctor's for something. She's waiting in the doctor's office, sees a woman sitting very nervously, obviously very agitated. And so Nell says, hey, are you okay? You seem really upset. The lady said, they took a biopsy from me. I'm about to find out if I have cancer. Nell says, do you know God? You need to have someone, you need to have God go through this with you. I don't know God. Well, you could know, I can help you know God. And there in the waiting room, she's leading number two to Christ. Goes home, writes number two name in the book. And says, God, it's not too late to give me a third person. Well, she, she discovers she's actually pretty good at this. And for the next, the next uh, 13 years, she keeps telling people about Jesus. And uh, when, I, when I was there with her that day, she lived in North Carolina. She passed away last year. She, uh, she, she kept putting names in that book. 
And so I was actually speaking at the Billy Graham uh, Training Center. It was about an hour from her house. I said, hey, Nell, do you mind if I stop by and just see you? We'd, we'd communicated before, but I'd never met her face to face. So I drove over to see her. I brought her those flowers. I said, Nell, you know what I want to see. Show me the book. So that's the book in front of us. And I started flipping through the pages. I wanted to know the last entry, like how many people, not how many people has she witnessed to, how many people has she actually led to pray to become a Christian? And I keep flipping and flipping and flipping. Finally, I get to the last entry. It's 3,147. I said, now, for 67 years, you never told anybody about Jesus. In the last 13, you've personally led 3,147 people to pray the sinner's prayer. How do you explain that? She said, it wasn't until I was 67 years old that God finally opened my eyes and convinced me he'd been at work all around me all my life. And he said, before it's too late, do you want to get involved in what I've been doing all this time? And uh, I'll tell you what, it, it just blew me away. I, uh, I just want to leave you with this truth, and that is that God is at work around you too. And my prayer would be that as you enter into the year 2020, your prayer would be, God, would you open my spiritual eyes? Let me see what you're doing around me. And may 2020 be the, be the greatest spiritual harvest you've ever produced through me. Let me just pray with you and I'll be done. Lord, thank you for these who have given their time to be here tonight, and all that they've heard throughout the day. Lord, would you open our eyes, and would you use each person in this room mightily for your kingdom in the days to come. May we also be like now and realize we're never too old, it's never too late to have our greatest walk with God we've ever had in our life. May there be a bumper crop of spiritual fruit. May you push back the darkness around us and extend your kingdom every place that we go. And I'd pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this ELO podcast. You can subscribe to the Entrepreneurial Leaders monthly newsletter to stay informed of new ELO resources and upcoming events. You'll find the link in the show notes.